What is the price of the clothes and the food that we eat every day? Do we consider the impact each garment or chocolate bar we consume, where it came from, and how did it get to be in the store for such a low price? And what is the cost of this environmentally, socially, and who is at the end of this chain? During our documentary series on modern slavery, food and fashion fail, reporters Michelle Michaels, Jody Sidney, delve deeper into the costs on people, all for the price of a cheap t-shirt and a chocolate bar. How much power do we as consumers have against the corporations? That's the only thing that's going to make the corporations change anything is knowing that people are not buying their products anymore because they actually do care about the way that humans or the land are being treated. In terms of it creating more pressure, I mean, I all I can do is look to many other um, issues where the farm workers themselves or people have called for divestment or things like that. So in the United States, you have the United Farm Workers. They were asking people to boycott grapes in order to, for them to have a better way of living, a better way of working. Even though it meant that they may lose their jobs because the people weren't buying grapes, it was worth it for them. In South Africa during apartheid, we had activists asking people to stop buying products that were coming from the apartheid regime because a statement needed to be made. And I think that you have the same thing here, is that a statement has to be made. Then we're not wanting people to be treated that way anymore. And we're willing to use our voices and our dollars in order to make a point. How best do we share the information? As consumers, do we campaign, stop buying products, create our own ethical products? Well, I think that that is the key, right? Is that most people are not exposed to this information. They do not understand how prevalent this problem is. They think it's, you know, one time this thing is happening and you know, everything must be taken care of now because this is horrific that children in slavery are taking place for chocolate. Oh, I don't hear about it for a while. It must be taken care of. And, you know, this is going to be a long-term... I don't think it should be difficult to do, and maybe I'm just being very simplistic, but at the end of the day, these corporations have the money to do it and they have the ability to do it right. And that is what I see them not willing to do is there are just about, you know, signing up to anything they can versus saying, wow, if we just really pay these people, I mean, because they don't want to lose that profit. They don't want to lose that, um, maybe that extra house that they have or something like that. But the problem is, is that we just need to get back to basics. We just need to get very, start from the ground up and figure out a way because these farmers are the ones who know. They're the ones who are living it. They're the ones who are experiencing it. And until they're talked to about what their needs are and how things can be improved for them, we're going to continue to have this problem. Modern slavery is real. It is happening within our communities on multiple levels. You just may not realise it. Having not been exposed personally to modern slavery, I spoke to adjunct professor, Royal University of Law and Economics, human rights lawyer and international humanitarian law expert, Natalia Zablewska, about the definition of modern slavery and its deeper intricacies. 
Natalia, can you please paraphrase what the term modern slavery is in your words? It's actually not going to be that difficult because everything, anyone can only paraphrase um, what modern slavery is because as a fact, there is no globally agreed on definition of modern slavery. So really that term is more of an umbrella term that brings in different terms that and most of them already have a legal definition, such as human trafficking uh, or slavery or forced labor. And so really when we're talking about modern slavery, we're talking about those different forms by which um, or situations where one person's uh, freedom is being taken away by somebody else. And whether we're referring here to the freedom to control one's body or freedom to choose or refuse or stop working. Um, and all of those have been, um, uh, the, all the situations, um, the purpose of them has been for the exploitation of that person. So really the term itself, modern slavery or modern day slavery doesn't have um, very specific definition as such yeah so and and um and as a matter of fact there's been a bit of a a debate in the field as to whether it's um appropriate term to use and whether it really captures what's in practice going on domestic legislation where they use that very term so we have the Modern Slavery Act 2015 in the UK, and we have two acts in Australia called exactly the same Modern Slavery Act in um, uh, 2018 in New South Wales and the Commonwealth. Truth, love, wisdom.
freedom, all things are possible. Technology, health, wealth, polygamy are all facets of power. Each of these improved lives of human beings. Fruits of liberty are everything good and bring peace, prosperity and joy. You live after the era of wars and the only remaining step in the pattern of liberty is to answer the question held in the minds of people around the world. They are poised and ready, poised and ready. Unquenchable thirst for freedom that grows within the hearts of every person on earth. They are poised and ready, poised and ready. They need only hear that freedom is possible. Liberty is real and it belongs to you. Let the chains that hold you crumble to dust. This world will be free if you can see your own value. Stand tall. So, to recap on the Modern Slavery Act in Australia in simple terms, businesses that turn over $100 million per year will need to report on their supply chains and their modern slavery compliance. And in New South Wales, the, requ the law requires the business to report if it is $50 million per year. Um, is that not a little bit confusing, especially, I mean, as a human rights lawyer, working in the field that you work in and also tutoring and lecturing, is it not confusing to have two different modern slavery acts within Australia? In, well, it's interesting uh, point that you're raising here. And in many ways, you know, you could say it's a little bit confusing, but that's not necessarily only um, in relation to modern slavery. Um, it, really, it really is because of the federal system we have in Australia. So there are other branches of law, such as environmental law or human rights law, in, uh, where you would have um, the same or very similar acts in different states or at the state and uh, the federal level. Uh, and again, the reason why why that is the case is because, again, as a federal system, there are different powers between the federal and state governments, and some of them overlap. So that potentially can cause some confusion um, and in relation to Modern Slavery Act, uh, it, it's definitely been raised by the civil society and the businesses um, that some of the terminology used in both acts are, are different and so that might make it a little bit more difficult for companies to comply uh, with what is required of them. On the other hand, you can also argue that some of these areas are so complex that really it's impossible for one jurisdiction to deal with them in isolation. And okay. so having the same or similar laws in the same area can in fact be beneficial. It appears to me, I mean, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but when reading the Modern Slavery Act, um, the Federal Modern Slavery Act, it is prescribed 
$100 million per year for a company to then have to report on their supply chains. Then in the New South Wales Modern Slavery Act, it's a threshold of $50 million. Does That to me seems to leave open, and, and I understand what you're saying that, you know, it, it's such a broad, a broad, it's a big country, and in order to enforce the act, it's better to have these individual acts in different states. But does that not leave open an opportunity for businesses to deal in an underhanded fashion? The threshold companies to report differs between the Commonwealth Act and between uh, and the New South Wales Act. And so on the Commonwealth Act, the turnover or as is termed in the Act, the annual consolidated revenue is 100 million. Whereas on the New South Wales Act, um, that is for the threshold is for companies um, of or above 50 million and with staff in New South Wales. Mm. Now, I have worked on a session and, and, and also colleagues across the civil society and everyone or majority of those organizations and individuals are really agree that the fact that we have the Commonwealth Act shouldn't necessarily mean that, that should, we should completely scrap the New South Wales Act. And there are a number of reasons, but two main reasons is that the Commonwealth Act uh, for uh, companies of 100 million does not attach any penalties, whereas the uh, New South Wales Act does. And as, we, as we've learned on the experience in the UK with the Modern Slavery Act um, there, even when you have compulsory voting uh, schemes but that not, do not have penalties attached, then the uptake and compliance is relatively low. And so we've, uh, and, and the majority of the civil society and with my colleagues with the Australian Lawyers for Human Rights, we are in fact advocating that the New South Wales Act should stay because of those penalties attached. And that hopefully will make more companies uh, um, compliant and more willing to submit um, the, the statements, anti-modern um, slavery statements. The other element is also, so there are some differences between both acts that the New South Wales Act provides for the anti-slavery um, commissioner which is not provided for under the commonwealth act uh, and also the fact that the threshold is, is lower in meaning that there will be many more companies will be caught by the requirement to submit the statements now with whether we're looking into companies below 50 million, or turnover below 50 million in New South Wales or elsewhere in Australia over below 100, companies are still encouraged to do it uh, voluntarily. Some companies for sure will do it. I mean, we yet to see it, but um, based on the experience elsewhere, it shows that often companies who are not required per se, nevertheless, they still decide to, to comply and still decide to submit those statements and obviously there are different reasons why companies would do it you know for some 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 companies this is simply a matter of of being seen as good citizen as good corporate citizen and consumers these days they they like to see that brands and companies do 
kind of ethical decisions. So in many ways, this is a bit of a branding exercise for many companies. But beyond that, I mean, I wouldn't be necessarily overly uh, pessimistic that that's the only way or the only reasons why companies do so. I would say that a lot of companies they genuinely feel that um, the sectors, the different sectors, the, the, the businesses are key players in, in fighting modern slavery. And so they willingly join uh, in those efforts. The tea industry, similar to our own sugar and cotton industry in Australia, has enslaved and kept people in indentured slavery trade the world over but particularly in India. Organic India, an Ayurvedic herbal company, is working tirelessly to not only share and spread the wisdom of age-old remedies, but ensures and elevates those who assist in the change of this type of business. Sarada Martin speaks about the company and their plight to change the way that we consume, how we consume, and why we consume. The found there were actually there was a, a group of people, mm-hmm. um, mostly Westerners. Two of the founders, specifically, he's from Israel and she's from America. They were all living and studying with their spiritual guide in, in Lucknow, which is an industrial city in, in Uttar Pradesh. And what they were noticing when they were shopping in the marketplace was that there was very little transparency. They couldn't find out which produce had been sprayed, were the markets paid fairly for this project, were they being paid at all, was it a living wage, what kind of livelihood were the farmers behind, were the farmers experiencing behind juice that they were seeing in the market. So there was that and there was this very strong reverence from the local people for this incredible herb Tulsi or holy basil. And this, this herb is, is literally worshipped as sacred because of its life-giving and longevity um, providing benefits. And they couldn't, they really wondered, they couldn't believe why they hadn't heard of Tulsi in the West. And they wondered about bringing this herbal wisdom to the West. That's how it began. They actually had received an instruction from their spiritual guide to set up a private limited company and a foundation care for all, for all people and for the planet. So that's how they began. So they tell some incredible stories about how they knew that in order to do this properly they had to work directly with farmers and that they needed to effectively have that that connection with every Point in the t- supply chain, and there were some there were some incredible moments, particularly with the first village of farmers, because with marginalised farmers, you're working with one to two acre plots, small family farms. Mm-hmm. The whole village needed to convert to organics and grow these medicinal herbs, not just one or two farmers. And there was such a there was such a hope there, but offset by the fear of well, if I was to grow rice or pulses, I can sell it on the open market, but If I'm growing medicinal herbs, who's going to buy that if you fall through, if you don't pay me? There was fear. They were excited. They loved the possibility and the hope of of this incredible business model, which is um, bringing so much opportunity. As it turned out, one whole village began 
and they started growing. I mean, Organic India took care of everything. Certification, farmers didn't need to be literate just to sign their name. Um, seeds, uh, teaching and mentoring and guiding through organic and biodynamic principles. We still have on the ground uh, agricultural PhD uh, employees wow. work side by side with the farmers. So they're planning what's going to be planted, they're planning how much of which herb is going to be planted and then they're being paid on time for the herbs that are harvested and, and always at above market price, regardless of the yield, regardless of the season. Traffickers use psychological trauma and force as a means of control and intimidation. And so people would tell their stories and you'd see the trauma in their eyes that the traffickers don't just try to steal someone's wages or their labor. They want to steal your hope. And that episode of Modern Slavery, Food and Fashion Fail was from Jody Sidney with an interview with Lauren Ornelas, from Food is Power. Jody was also speaking to Natalie Slezbowska from Southern Cross University, who is part of the Lawyers for International Human Rights.
Thank you to Cody McCarthy with The Boy of Many Colours for his song Wind Chimes in this series and to Julie Fredonet for her original song Freedom Now. And thanks again to the Community Broadcasting Foundation of Australia for their funding. Join the evolution with Eco Futures.